0: Hi, welcome to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're continuing with our Titus series called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness. Since Christianity is a life of faith, it means that there needs to be a source of power to live the Christian life, right? Well, that power comes from God through Christ, and we call it grace. In this message, we're gonna learn that grace not only saves us by breaking the bondage we have to sin, but it also equips us, so to speak, to reject the desire to live in ungodliness. Here's Pastor John with part two of a message called The Grace of God Trains Us With the Power to Reject Worldliness.
1: Repentance then is about the direction of my life, not the perfection of my life. It is about continually turning from sin and forward to Christ every day, all day long. This is what the grace of God teaches and produces in us. And you need to understand that our repentance and our belief turning forward to Christ, is imperfect. Rod Rosenblatt, great Lutheran theologian, says this, our repentance is always imperfect and always half-hearted. This is preparation for believing the gospel promise. And we believe that half-heartedly too. And God saves us anyway in Jesus. You see, continual repentance from ungodliness and worldly desires leads the believer to Christ and the gospel of grace, and that is what instructs me and you to pursue godliness. And this leads us to the second lesson of grace. Look at verse verses 12 and 13. The second lesson that grace teaches us is the grace of God educates the believer to live a godly life it is not simply enough to renounce an ungodly life, but never even begin to live a godly life. That's not enough. The goal of this education of grace, the gospel, is to teach me to renounce ungodliness so that I begin to pursue godliness. And so on the positive side, grace educates me, listen, to live. Isn't that great? To live the gospel brings life. It is living because God, by the Holy Spirit, is pouring His life into me to live. The gospel is teaching me, in the grace of God, to live a godly life in the present age with an eye towards the future. That's verses 12 and 13. So, let's look at this. What is the present age? The present age is simply the time that we live in now. In Paul's day, the present age was when he was referring or speaking about the licentious, self-indulgent culture of Crete. The present age in which we lived is characterized by ungodliness and worldly passions, and it stands in contrast to the age to come. Now, what is the point to note about that? The point to note about that is very important. The point to note is that even in the midst of such cultural decadent chaos like Crete, Paul expected the Cretan believers to be able to live a godly life. This leads us to another observation that we need to grasp, which is this, is that Paul lived with a sense of the present saving power of the gospel. He didn't just talk about the gospel in past tense he talked about its saving effect in the present based on the past tense. Paul was fully persuaded that those who receive the grace of God, and again, the grace of God is a person, not a substance, not some impersonal force. It is the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. He was fully persuaded that that grace in the past, which has appeared is always enabling believers in the present to live godly lives. Too often, pastors, churches, and believers talk about what God did then without connecting what God did then with what he is doing now in the present age. Gerhard Ferdy writes, he makes this great observation. He says, What preaching needs is a sense for the present. Preaching goes on as though the mighty acts of God have long since ceased. God was in Christ reconciling. What is he up to now? God so loved the world that he gave then. What is he giving now? All those things are true, of course, but they are past or at least we treat them as such, because they're really not past. Preaching, however, is to move into the present to speak in the spirit of the living God. It is to assume that what I have to do now in the living present is the present addition of the mighty acts of God, which are based on the past. This is what Paul had here. He had a present sense of the saving power of the gospel that has appeared in the past. What is he saying? He understood that the past appearance, the historical completed work of Jesus in his life, death, burial, resurrection, he understood that that past appearance of grace has a present ongoing saving significance right now. And through the proclamation of the gospel in the church, the Holy Spirit is making that past act as as much real now as it was then. And so the historical appearance of Jesus in the past finds fresh actualization in the present through the ongoing proclamation of the gospel now. And when you preach that gospel, the Holy Spirit takes that means of grace and communicates it to the believer's heart and produces in that heart godliness. It saves. It educates. We need to have this present sense of the saving power of the gospel. Why? Because possessing a sense for the present saving power of the gospel eliminates a person from making an excuse for license. It takes away all excuses. Why? Well, you don't understand my circumstance. Listen, Paul was addressing slaves in verse nine. And he thought that the gospel had enough saving power to even enable them in the worst of social legal circumstances to pursue a godly life. You cannot blame your circumstances on the fact that you don't pursue godliness because the gospel has appeared, bringing saving power to the present, changing and teaching and enabling you now, educating you to be a godly person. You see, if Paul thought it was possible for believers, even slaves in the first century culture of Crete, which was notoriously ungodly, if he thought it was possible for them to live a godly life, it's possible for you and I in American culture to live a godly life. Third, I want you to notice in verse 12, Paul selects three virtues, which are three adverbs. He says that the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly. The ESV has godly lives, but literally the word is just godly these virtues are important. Why? Where did they come from? They came from chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. Paul is going back and carefully selecting a list that provides a comprehensive summary of Christian virtue. And why is this important? Here's why it's important. Because in verses 2 through 10, he is exhorting believers to do this. It's no gospel there. In verses 11 through 14, he's taking those virtues and grounding them in the gospel. He's showing us that the grace of God gives and enables and empowers a believer to actually become and do what is exhorted by him in the law. This is so important. Paul knew that he could exhort believers to live a virtuous Christian life because he believed and knew and was persuaded that the gospel would give what the law is demanding of the believer to do. And so Paul has this triad of grace that indicates three duties, our duty to ourself, our duty to our neighbor, and our duty to God. Let's look at them very quickly. They're very simple. First of all, what does the grace of God teach us is our duty to ourselves. It is to live self-controlled. This is the believer's duty to himself. This self-control is the main virtue in verses 2 through 10. Paul, so important was this virtue because of the cultural situation in Crete. Paul includes it in his instruction to older men, verse 2, older women, verse 4, younger women, verse 5, and younger men, verse 6. And it's implied to slaves Self-control in chapter 1, verse 8 is a necessary character requirement for elders. This is why it coincides with the requirement for older men to be self-controlled, chapter 2, verse 2, because where are you going to select elders from in the church to lead the church unless the older men in the church have this self-control in the character? This is why also an elder is to be self-controlled because self-control is evidenced by the fact that elders are the husband of one wife. They're one-women men chapter 1, verse 6. You see, the personal ethics of Cretans were marked by self-indulgence. Paul calls them lazy gluttons, self-indulgence, extravagance, licentious recklessness. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, that they're slaves of worldly desires or passions. But in contrast, Paul says that the grace of God that sits central in a believer's life is always teaching them, listen, to begin to live prudently and thoughtfully, to have self-control, not to engage in indulgence and licentiousness, license, but to live a responsible life of action and behavior toward others and to themselves. Second, the grace of God teaches us to live upright. What is upright? It's very simple. This virtue speaks of our duty toward our neighbor, It is the ethical obligations that we have toward our neighbor. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, by the grace of God, we have been justified. Now, he says, based upon that foundation, the grace of God begins to instruct us who are justified to live justly, righteously with our neighbor. Again, to understand, Paul is contrasting this virtue with the vice of Cretan culture. The Cretan culture was notorious for lying, particularly in their business dealings with one another on a daily basis. It was hard to do business in Crete because everybody was a swindler and a liar. Nobody was treating their neighbor justly and righteously. They were not upright. They were marked by greed. Chapter 1, verse 11, these false teachers epitomized this greed. The false teachers who had infiltrated Christian households felt no obligation to teach these young Christian creed and believers to renounce ungodly vice of being unjust towards other people. They were teaching them license, But Paul says, God's grace teaches my heart to live righteously, to live a life of truth and justice in all of my dealings with my neighbor. That has huge ramifications for how we go about our daily vocations in life, Monday through Friday, or Monday through Saturday, or perhaps some of you work Sunday to Sunday. Huge implications of how you treat other people righteously, justly. Third, the grace of God educates the believer to live godly. This third grace-instructed virtue speaks of your duty or your relationship to God himself. This old attitude of indifference to God, the grace of God replaces that indifferent attitude toward God with an attitude of supreme devotion to God. Once you did not have any place for God in your life, and all of a sudden one day, by the grace of God, you're awakened, now he has a place in your life. You're conscious of living in his presence. You're conscious of your thoughts and your actions lived out in the presence of God himself. You are now God-centered. You are godly. You have a desire in your heart to fulfill all the duties required of you as a Christian. Yes, you will fail, but the failure continually is renounced and the pursuit of godliness is continually pursued. And so to live godly is to render all of our service to God. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, we don't have time to turn there, but Paul says to slaves, you're not working for man. Render all your service as unto God. Martin Luther says this, he says, when someone thinks as follows, I am serving the government, not for his own sake, but for God's. This is Godliness. I serve the brother, not for his own sake, but for God's. I love my wife. I love my family. And everything I do is for his sake. This is what it means to be godly. This is what the grace of God teaches me in my heart. The grace of God educates the gospel. Jesus educates me over and over, to live with a conscious awareness of God's presence, the Holy Spirit, who is now indwelling me, to live with this presence of God, this conscious awareness that all of my life, all of my actions, all of my thoughts are lived out before God, and that I have this desire now to fulfill all of my duties toward him. This is what the grace of God teaches us. This is what it's like to be in the school of Christ's grace. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And so the question is, how? As we reflect on this, how exactly does the grace of God educate me to live a godly life? Let's just briefly look at it. It's very simple. By the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit takes that good news and he brings life He brings us to life, and when he brings us to life, two things occur in my life, the dying away of my old nature and the coming to life of the new nature. Heidelberg Catechism in question 89 asks, what is the dying away of the old nature? Answer, it is heartfelt sorrow for sin, causing us to hate and turn from it always more and more. Question 90 then asks, what is the coming to life of the new nature? Here's the answer. It is heartfelt joy in God. That's what the grace of God teaches me. Heartfelt joy in God. And that causes me to take delight in living according to the will of God in all good works. This life granted by the Holy Spirit that is teaching me to live takes the gospel and instructs my heart on how to live a godly life. The Holy Spirit takes the gospel and brings me into the Christian life. He, he performs a miracle of raising the dead ex nihilo creation. He speaks the word of the gospel, and I am brought to life by the Holy Spirit. I am now given this new nature, and the Holy Spirit takes that same gospel and builds me up through the knowledge of the truth, the gospel, which accords with godliness, not simply just to do good works, but to first have heart felt joy in God who has raised me from the dead and given me new life. And then from that, I am then driven with delight to do good works. Paul says, we'll see in verse 14, look, I'm not only delighting to do good works, verse 14, the gospel teaches me to be zealous for good works. The word there is the grace of God makes me a zealot, makes me a zealot to abound in godliness. Good works toward God, good works toward my neighbor. Because of grace, we desire to renounce an ungodly life and to live a godly life. Grace teaches us to hate our sin, to turn from it more and more. Grace teaches me to have heartfelt joy in God. In fact, it creates the heartfelt joy in God. When I begin to understand the gospel, I can't help but to have heartfelt joy and such good news. Listen, it causes me, the gospel causes me to take delight in living a godly life. We begin to hate the thought of grieving our Father. We begin to hate the thought of grieving the Holy Spirit. We don't like our sin. We confess our sin we turn and renounce our ungodliness. We renounce these worldly passions that wage war in us, and we say, no, no, no. I will follow Christ. I will embrace Christ. I will trust in Christ to save me right now, to help me, serve me right now. I will not do that. I will not think like that. That is what the grace of God teaches me. The grace of God educates me to confess what David confessed in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You see, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, seeking to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present evil age, it's not a drudgery if the gospel is informing my heart. It's not A labor for me to say no to my sin. I hate my sin. I love God in his ways. I delight in his way. I love his law. It has been written on my heart by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. I want to be like Christ. But more importantly than confessing like David, Psalm 40 verse 8, the author of Hebrews says that is really speaking of Christ. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, attributes Psalm 40, 6 through 8, to Christ first appearing. He appeared, Paul says, his past appearing, the incarnation, he appeared. When he appeared, what did he appear saying? What did he appear doing? The author tells us in the Hebrews, He says that Christ's incarnation is viewed as the supreme act of man's submission to the will of God, even even in view of impending death on the cross. Jesus came and said, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, the perfect man. Peter O'Brien says, it is as if our author in Hebrews overhears the Son addressing the father on the occasion of his first entry into this world. When the eternal son came incarnate in the womb of Mary, he was saying to his father, Oh, how I delight to do your will. Oh my God. Jesus, the perfect man, the incarnate son of God, loves his father and he delights to do his will. In John four thirty four, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Accomplishing the saving mission of his father that his father had sent him to do was like food to Jesus. It was like the latte of lattes to Jesus. It was like the stake of stakes to Jesus. It was his delight. It was his pleasure. It was what he lived for to be consumed in delighting and obeying his father and fulfilling the mission for which the father sent him to do. In John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do the things. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's your salvation. The incarnate Son of God lived a godly life on our behalf. He lived a life of reverent awe in the presence of God. How do I know this? Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears as a man doing this, fully submitted to the will of God, Jesus offered up these loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Because of his godly life, he was heard. Simply put, what are we saying here? What is Paul teaching us here? The grace of God educates me to be just like Jesus. A man fully submitted out of heartfelt delight in the Father to want to obey and do His will, not out of drudgery, but out of a relationship that has freed me. That's called grace. The Holy Spirit brings me into the life of the loving fellowship of the Trinity. And he causes me to share in the same love that Jesus has for his Father. And the grace of God then begins to teach me to desire to do God's will just like I desire food to live. The grace of God educates me more and more to renounce my godless ungodly life and to live a life of reverent awe in the presence of god this is the essence of a godly life this is how the grace of god makes the christian life beautiful in other words godly
0: Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called, The Grace of God Trains Us with the Power to Reject Worldliness, Part 2. More from the series, Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness, coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages... You can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.